Well, I've already tipped my hand as to my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, funny story, a number of years ago, my wife and I were participants in the newlywed game. Although it was not newlyweds, we were all had been married at least uh, 20 years. And we, we destroyed the competition, by the way, just wiped them out. Uh, I guess doing marriage conferences does help to get to know your wife better because you actually talk about some of the things that you teach. And one of the questions that uh, still, of course, the deal is, are, are they asking the right questions? And one of the questions they asked us was, what is the last thing your husband fixed around the house? Well, that's problematic because I had a mechanical bypass at birth. I can't fix anything. I can't hardly do anything when it comes to stuff like that. And so when they asked me the question, I am racking my brain. And I'm like, I haven't done anything in a week, a month, a year. In fact, I, I don't know if I've ever done anything in our entire, entire married life that would fall into this category. And finally, the guy said, well, you got to say something or we got to move on. So I said, well, can you say nothing? And the crowd went crazy because she held up a card. Nothing. She knew exactly uh, what kind of husband she had married. But the one that sealed the deal was the bonus question, what is your husband's favorite book of the Bible? And uh, one guy said John, but his wife said Romans. Another guy said uh, Psalms, but his wife said Philippians. And they came to me, and I confess, I was a little arrogant, but I said, well, this is over because I know on that card in her lap, she has written the Song of Solomon, and she held up the card, the Song of Solomon. Now, you say, why in the world of the 66 books in the Bible do you like that book the best? Well, I really am a romanticist at heart. That's just how God uh, put me together. But secondly, all these years as I was reading the book, I sensed that there was something bigger about the love story that is between Solomon and, the, and Shulamite in the eight chapters. And of course, ultimately, this book points us to Christ. You say, how so? Well, what is the book about? The book is about a shepherd king, you ever heard of that, who's in search of a bride. He finds his bride and marries her. And by the end of the book, he can say of her, she is flawless, she is perfect, in her there is no defect. Well, of course, we know that there is a shepherd king named Jesus who's been in search of a bride, his church. And when you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation in chapter 19 with the marriage supper of the Lamb, there you find the bride bright and clean in perfectly white garments because that is what he has made us. So there's a part of the redemptive story that's in the book as well. But in this book, there's a single verse, and I hardly ever teach from a single verse, but I'm making an exception in this session, found in chapter 2 and verse 15. And this is what the Bible says in Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 15. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Uh, the New Living Translation says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Uh, the New King James, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. Our vines have tender grapes. And the message, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase then you must protect me from the foxes, foxes on the plow, 
foxes that would like nothing better than to get into our flowering garden. Now, what is Solomon doing? Simply this. He compares marriage to a vineyard. And, of course, if you know anything about grape vineyards, you know, number one, they've got to be planted. Secondly, they've got to be tilled and cared for. But number three, they've got to be protected. And even to this day, by the way, grapes are a massive, massive uh, product in Israel. And it's a massive export uh, for uh, the nation of Israel. But I, when I've been on tours, and I've been over there more than a dozen times, I will ask the tour guides, uh, the, the, the vineyards, the grape vineyards, are foxes a danger? And without exception, oh yeah, foxes love grapes. And if we don't guard them, they get in and they eat the grapes away from the vines. And when you come back later for the harvest, there's nothing there. And what Psalm is saying is, look, that's what happens in marriage. Most marriages that get in trouble, they don't get in trouble over big things. They get in trouble over little things, the little foxes that can slip in unaware, unnoticed, and do irreparable damage. So what I'm going to do in this last session, and it will be the shortest of the three, I'm going to talk about some of the more common little foxes, although I want to be honest. The first one, we're on page 11 in your notes. The first one is actually a pretty big one, uh, but it does filter down into the everyday living and, and working out of life, and I'll, I'll note that as well. So, what are some of the more common little foxes that can ruin a marriage? Number one, the fox of gender confusion and abuse. A marriage will get in trouble when God's role for the husband and the wife is either reversed on the one hand or abused on the other. Let me give the quick uh, explanation and then uh, digress for a moment. God made men to be men, fathers, and husbands. God made women to be uh, women, mothers, and wives. And no one is as good at being a husband and a father as a man. And no one is as good at being a wife and a mother as a woman. But if those roles get reversed, your marriage will get in trouble. But if they're abused, and this is the more common one, uh, the Bible's clear. God calls men to a leadership assignment in marriage and in the home, in the family. But the Bible provides very specific uh, types of leaders. Uh, bottom line, we are called by God to be servant leaders. We're called by God to be shepherd leaders. We're not called by God to be drill sergeants or, or frustrated CEOs or, or knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. Those are not at all the models for leadership that you find in the Bible. We're to lead like Jesus leads, serving, laying down his life for us. And so if a man begins to think in a more uh, dictatorial, you're not a dictator. You're a servant leader. And if you don't follow that model, your marriage will get in trouble. But gender confusion, my goodness. I knew that when the Obergefell decision was handed down by the Supreme Court, we opened up a Pandora's box, and that box has no floor. There, there's no bottom to it. And I have been surprised only at how rapidly we have mo moved and rushed headlong into perversion in our culture. That has surprised me. But at the same time, it shouldn't have. Why? 
Because sinners are going to act like sinners. Lost people are going to act like lost people. You and I make a huge mistake when we get upset at sinners acting like sinners and lost people acting like lost people. We've often said, and rightly so, save for the grace of God, there goes me. And so we need to recognize that that is indeed the case. Having said that, you have a far, those of you that are parents, your challenge in terms of rearing your children well in this culture, I think is greater than at any time in the history of America. Your children are bombarded. But let me say it to you this way. My grandchildren, they are growing up in a world where same-sex marriage has always been. It's always been to them. There was never a time when it wasn't. Just like they grew up in a world where computers have always been. Smartphones have always been. Remote controls have always been. That's just normal. That's just their normal world. And yet you've got to, and there are three words that ought to be on the, uh, the, the tongue, the lips, and in the mind of every Christian. Grace, truth, and love. Grace, truth, and love. Jesus, the Bible says, was full of what? Grace and truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15, we are to speak the truth in love. And unfortunately, some of us are too much grace people with little or no truth. But some of us are truth people with little or no grace and love. And you've got to train your children to think well in Christian biblical categories, especially when it comes to gender, but also to do so in a way that is full of grace and love. But let me tell you how it's working. I am a seminary president. I serve all of you. There are six of us. We also have a college, a great college. I am getting more and more incoming freshmen, more and more and more. So let me be clear. I didn't make them this way. They're coming out of our churches this way. They will say something like this. Personally, for me, I believe that the Bible teaches that there are only two genders, male and female, men and women. And I believe that, and that's right for me. But when it comes to the law, and when it comes to what people are allowed to do, who am I to say to someone else that what they're doing is wrong? It's like years ago when I had a few friends, not many, but a few, that would say, well, you know, when it comes to abortion, personally, I am pro-life. When it comes to legislation, I'm pro-choice, which is radically inconsistent. But that's the world in which I now function as a seminary president. And again, you shouldn't think that your children are immune from this. They are being baptized in this. They are being inundated with this. You can't watch a sitcom anymore or a new movie anymore where there's not going to be a homosexual or lesbian or bisexual or transgender relationship. They're just there in all of them. And they're trying to make this look 
normal. And it is going to be the unraveling. It is in part already becoming the unraveling of our culture. Now, I have a little hope. It's very little. Uh, I've always held out for this hope, and it's actually manifesting itself today. Whether or not it will carry the day or not, I don't know. But the thing I always held out that would try to bring back some sanity in this area is in the area of athletics. In the area of athletics, where you've got biological males being national champion swimmers or biological males being gifted and you pick the sport. It's not going to ever go the other way because we know God made us biologically. Men are just bigger, stronger, and faster. It's just the way we are, all right? So you're not going to have a bunch of women flooding the NFL. It's never going to happen. Or the major leagues, or, the, or, or, or basketball. It's just not going to happen. It goes the other way. And what's happening? You've got parents, and in particular, mamas. I've always been very proud and grateful for mama bears. They are rising up with one voice, and they're saying, this isn't right, this isn't fair. And it's not right, and it isn't fair. But then you also see the unbelievable blowback and criticism they get. And are you going to be able to raise a generation of children that can speak the truth in love, that can be full of both grace and truth, and whether the criticism and the ostracism, and yes, on some level, even the persecution that they may get when it comes to taking a stand for what is right. And I'm not talking about, I, I really don't think, at least in my lifetime, I'm not fearful that I'm going to go to jail for saying that I believe homosexuality is sinful and lesbianism is sinful and transgender and bisexuality and the queer agenda and the, all the way down the line, the, all the alphabet. I don't. <clears throat> But I think it could cost some of your children their career. I think they could be blackballed when it comes to jobs. And I do think it can be something that is going to be costly. And yet, are we going to help them understand that a good God determined gender distinctions for our human flourishing? And so you need to see that it's done on that kind of level, but working its way down in the way that you teach and train your children. And I do pray with all of my heart, you're not teaching your children to hate those people. Number one, they do bear the image of God just like you and me. And number two, Jesus did die for them just like he died for you and me. And number three, Jesus loves them like he loves you and me. What they need is not our condemnation. What they need is for us to love them well and share the gospel and to treat them with respect and dignity, even if we strongly disagree with their lifestyle. And that is not an easy thing to do, but it is the godly right thing to do. Number two, the fox of intimacy stagnation. A marriage will get in trouble when that initial sensual love fails to develop into true intimacy. Why did I marry my wife, Charlotte? Probably the same reason, guys, you married your wife. She looked good. She looked good. At least she looked good to you. And so you married her because you were sensually attracted to her. And here's the point. Sensual attraction is given to us by God. And it is enough to get a marriage started. It is not enough to get that marriage to the finish line. 
And what you have to do is recognize that there is the danger of intimacy stagnation. And that little fox can be put to death by two words. And we talked about it in our last session. Best friends. Best friends. If you and your mate grow to be best friends, I promise you, you will discover an intimacy that is far wider and far deeper than you could ever, 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 ever imagine. I'll say it this way. When I married Charlotte, I loved her. But today, if I'm going to communicate well what's in my heart, I have to say it like this. Yes, I loved her when we married, but I really, really, really really love her today. I did not know that you could love a woman as much as I love my wife, Charlotte. And you can't know that when you're in your early 20s. It takes decade after decade after decade of living life together, growing in your knowledge of one another, and becoming closer and closer as best friends. Number three, the fox of poor communication of marriage will get in trouble when it is not being nourished by regular and genuine communication. When I do premarital counseling, my first session is always the same. First thing I do is I talk to the couple about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If I discover that one or both do not know the Lord, right there we kind of stop and I will present the gospel to them and try to show them the need for repenting of their sin and putting their faith and trust in Christ. Furthermore, and I don't apologize for this, I won't marry a believer and an unbeliever. I will not do that. Uh, and so there have been several times when I've met with a couple, found out one was not a believer, wasn't interested in becoming a believer, and I just said, well, I want you to know, I'll, I'll pray for you. And if you get married, I'll, I'll do anything I can to minister to you, but I can't perform your wedding, and I'm going to suggest that you not get married uh, because you need to be united in your commitment to Christ, all right? But if I find out after talking that they both have a valid testimony, I will say to them there are five areas in your marriage that are going to need to be constantly monitored if your marriage is going to be a blessing and is going to go the distance. And these are the, everybody agrees on these, by the way. No, no marriage counselor, no marriage and family therapist disagrees. All say this is the big five. You might want to jot them down. They're single words. Number one, communication. Number two, finances. Number three, sex. Number four, children. And number five, in-laws. That's the big five. One more time, and in that order, communication, finances. It used to be sex, but finances now have usurped it into the second slot. Three is sex, four is children, five is in-laws. And by the way, as we continue to move forward in the 21st century, there is a growing, a lot of, a lot of uh, marriage counselors want to add number six, and that is, it's two words though, aging parents. Aging parents. In other words, working backwards, it's becoming more and more of a challenge because we're living longer. How do you deal with your parents when they get older and perhaps are not as able any longer to care for themselves? And sometimes the big challenge is, and they don't want you getting in their business. I mean, you have to realize you'll always look like your little boy and little girl to your mom and dad, but aging parents. But here's the deal. If you begin to have trouble in your marriage with your in-laws, or you begin to have trouble in your marriage in how you rear and care for your children, 
If your intimate life never grows to be what God intended or it ceases to be what it once was, or your marriage gets into financial difficulty, you mark it down. Communication broke down. Communication broke down. There's a man by the name of John Gottman. Have you ever heard that name, John Gottman? A couple of you. John Gottman is not a Christian. He's a Jewish uh, marriage and family researcher. He's in Washington State, probably done more clinical uh, testing and observation on marriages than any man ever. In fact, they have a thing out there. They playfully call it the love lab. And what happens is they'll bring in couples that are having marriage difficulties. They hook them up to check their heart rate, their pulse, uh, their brain activity, perspiration, all that kind of stuff. And they watch them interact to a series of questions. And in his research, Gottman has become capable of predicting with about a 95% accuracy rate whether or not a couple will stay married or get a divorce by just watching the way they interact in the love lab. Well, in his book on marriage, he has a chapter where he, and again, this is fascinating to me because he's not a Christian. I don't think he probably knows the Bible. But in his book, he talks about what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse that destroy marriages. The four horsemen of the apocalypse that destroy marriages. And here they are, single words, you want to write them down. Number one, criticism. Number two, defensiveness. Number three, stonewalling. And number four, contempt. One more time, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. Criticism. You always see the glass half full. You have what I call a partly cloudy disposition with thunderstorms on the horizon. You always see your mate in a negative light, not a positive light, and you use, unfortunately, phrases that ought never to be used really in life, but much less in marriage, like you always and you never. First of all, those two statements are not true. No human being always does anything, and no human being never does any everything. That's just not who we are. It's not how we're wired, all right? So you make these kind of absolute statements. Furthermore, you notice what I said, you make you statements and very seldom I statements. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, it's always you. <clears throat> You're the problem. You're at fault. You messed up. You, you, you. Now, even if you think your mate messed up, a much wiser way to go, boys and girls, is to say, well, can I tell you how I see this? Can I tell you how I feel about this? And by the way, this is for free. Conversations are always better at 10 o'clock in the morning than they are at 10 o'clock at night. Conversations are always better at 10 o'clock in the morning than 10 o'clock at night. Why? Because at 10 o'clock at night, you're tired, you're frazzled, and you will act in ways and say things that you would never say when you're rested. And, so, and also, it's better to have a, a strong conversation sitting down and not standing up. Just try it. You're, you're more calm, you're more measured when you're seated, not walking, all right? But criticism. Secondly, defensiveness. You're never wrong. You're never at fault. 
It's always the other person. So anytime criticism comes in your way, you know what's amazing in life, and, and, and I'm the same way, I'm not, I'm not uh, any different. I take the criticism from my wife more personally than I do from other people. You could criticize me, and it wouldn't really get all over me. But when she criticizes me, it, it hurts. It stings more. And sometimes we need to be criticized. But a lot of times we're just defensive because we don't take responsibility for anything. Stonewalling. There's a problem in your marriage. You don't want to deal with it. You're not a confrontational kind of person. And so you deceive yourself. You think, well, if I just ignore it, eventually what? It'll go away. Well, no, it won't. It just gets worse. It festers. But Goblin points out that of the four, the most deadly in a marriage is contempt. And he points out that contempt is often not verbal language, but body language. Your mate says something and you go, roll your eyes and shake your head. And you don't respond verbally because by your body language, you say to your mate, you know what? I'm not even going to take the time to mess with you because I don't think you're worth it. Any marriage counselor will tell you, listen to me, any marriage counselor will tell you if a couple comes in and they are fighting like a cat and a dog, there's hope because they care enough to fight. If they come in and they just act indifferent, I had a counseling session one time where they came in, the man just sat there, didn't say a word. The lady had a list. I mean, she said, bam, bam, bam. Finally, I said, okay, okay, I get the picture. He's pretty much in your uh, estimation, a scum-sucking dog. But let me ask you a question. What if your husband were to leave this meeting today and go out and have an affair? How would you respond to that? And she responded like an ice queen. I hope he has a good time. Well, you would not be surprised that they didn't make it. Because they had reached a point where they just did not care contempt. Now, I want to be clear. Our God is a miracle-working God. And even if contempt has entered into your relationship, your marriage is not beyond being saved and salvaged by our God. But you need to recognize how crucial how we communicate with one another is to your marriage. Number four. The fox of time ill-spent. A marriage will get in trouble when forces or persons outside the marriage encroach on the all-important time the two of you need alone to build and maintain a healthy relationship. Now, this is my judgment in this day and time, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct. I think the most valuable commodity that all of us have in this room this morning is time. Time. And nobody in this room can make more time. You are just as rich as Musk and Gates and all the rest of those bazillionaires when it comes to time. They get 24-7 just like you do. And when you spend it over here, you don't get to spend it anywhere else. And brothers and sisters, here's the deal. If you don't take control of your calendar, somebody else will. And you'll allow things. that. And here's the deal. They may be good things. But for good marriages and good families, you've got to learn to make decisions. Not between the good and the bad. Between the good and the best. Let me apply this to our children. 
When our boys were younger, they were all very fine athletes. In fact, Nathan, my oldest twin, played Division I basketball for three years at Murray State. Uh, all four of them were stellar uh, high school athletes. And so when they were little, I would harass, I mean viciously harass, the basketball coach, the football coach, and the soccer coach to get their schedules because normally they'll come out six months early. And I would get those schedules, and what I would do is I would put every one of those games on my calendar. And I want you to know something. I would not allow anything to take place of those or schedule something over those. None of it. In fact, let's give this church for example. If I had gotten the schedule and I found out that my boys had a Friday or Saturday night football game this weekend, I would have called Charlie, and I'd say, Charlie, look, I, I, I do want to come to your church, but I want to ask you, would you allow me to reschedule? Because my boys have a, my son has a football game that night. And Charlie, I want to tell you something, brother. I did that probably a dozen times. I never had a pastor turn me down, not one time. I had a number of pastors, though, say to me, Brother Danny, I wish I had done that when my children were younger. Because here's how I got it figured out. First of all, the year my twins were seniors, we had two 12th graders, a 9th grader, and an 8th grader playing basketball. My wife and I that year saw 72 basketball games between November the 28th and February the 28th. 72 basketball games. I only missed a couple, and those were the times when the, the, the boys had two games at the same time in different places, which meant mom went to one, dad went to the other, and I saw almost all those basketball games. A few years later, my son Timothy became a senior. I still remember his last high school basketball game. They were in the playoffs in Louisville, lost to a school called Eastern High School, who had a point guard that year named Rajon Rondo. If you're a basketball fan, you know he played one year for Kentucky and then went on to the NBA, won an NBA championship with the Celtics, won an NBA championship with the Lakers. And folks, they played pretty well that night, but they lost that game. And when the buzzer went off that night, I'm sitting there with my wife and some other friends and it hit me just like that. You just watched the last high school basketball game you will ever watch one of your children play in for the rest of your life. They're gone. They're all gone. And guess what? You can't do anything, not one thing, to get any of those games back. And folks, if you're not there, especially you dads, if you're not there for your son's ball game or your son or daughter's band concert or play or ballet or whatever they're into, if you're not there, then their mom and their dad aren't there. And look, I don't want to put myself down, but there are a lot of guys that can come to a church and do a marriage conference. A lot of them are better than I am. But there is one man on the planet who can be the husband of Charlotte, and the daddy of Nathan and Jonathan and Paul and Timothy, and that's me. And so you have got to guard your calendar, and you've got to learn to say no to some good things that you might say yes to the best and the better things. Number five, the fox of outside interference. Your marriage will get in trouble 
when real and personal needs are being met more and more outside the marriage. This is the little fox that opens the door to this horrible thing called adultery. And as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter how much you love Jesus, wrong place, wrong time, wrong person, wrong thing is probably going to happen. Now, take your notes and turn over to the next page. Because again, there's been some really good research on this particular issue. And several years ago, I came across a study, 10 warning signs of infidelity. Uh, these are the type of things that would, uh, that would clue you that this little fox is lurking around your vineyard. And what you want to do is when you see it, you take a shotgun and you blow its head off, okay? In Jesus' name, of course. But you kill this little fox. And here are some of the signs that infidelity might be out there. Number one, that feeling of going through the marriage motions. Uh, you get bored with your marriage. And you deceive yourself into thinking, well, I'm not happy. And I have the right to be happy. And he's not making me happy or she's not making me happy. But that other guy or that other girl can make me happy. And you open the door to an affair or to adultery, to infidelity, because you've deceived yourself into thinking you have the right to be happy. Now listen to me. I'm a big fan of happy, okay? But the Bible doesn't say anywhere that you and I are promised happiness. Now the Bible says we're promised joy. The fact of the matter is, God has not called you to be happy. God has called you to be holy, faithful, and obedient. Furthermore, this is just food for thought. If you're bored with your marriage, have you ever thought that maybe you're the problem? That you're the boring one? I mean, what are you doing to spice up your marriage and to keep energy and passion going? And, you know, again, don't blame your mate, but begin to ask, all right, Lord, maybe it is me. What can I do to help make a change and a correction here? Number two, inventing excuses to visit someone of the opposite sex. Number three, increasing male-female contacts in normal environments like where you work, where you go to church, where your kids play ball, where you work out. I'll, I'll note this in a minute, but the two major breeding grounds for infidelity in America today one is the workplace, the other is the internet. The workplace and the internet, the two major breeding grounds for infidelity. Number four, being preoccupied with thoughts about another person. By the way, that may be something that only you and God know. I don't mean to speak to you illly, I don't know you. But some of you in this room may be really good liars. And some of you can lie so well that the only person who really knows what's going on between your ears is you and God. Now, you lie to your mate, but you can't lie to God. And you really shouldn't be lying to yourself either. In fact, you're probably not lying to yourself. You're just deceiving yourself. Number five, exchanging of gifts with a friend of the opposite sex. Now, you say, wait, that sounds a little excessive. Are you telling us you've never given a gift to anyone of the opposite sex other than your wife, or I might add, a family member? And the answer is, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. Now, I've got two secretaries, Kim and Kimberly. I think they love me. I think they know I love them. And they know that at Christmas and at uh, their birthday and on Secretary's Day, they'll get a gift, 
and they'll know that the gift was paid for by me, but it was picked out by my wife, and she'll be the one that delivers the gift, and then she will always take them out on Secretary's Day to a place where ladies like to go eat, like the tea room or the golden tree or something like that. Uh, I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not quite secure enough in my manhood yet to go to a place that's titled that. But they'll go out, and you say, why? Because I love them like sisters in Christ. I'm not going to do anything that could ever send an unclear sound. So when it comes to gift giving, they get lots of things, but it always comes from Charlotte and from me. Number six, making daily, weekly contact with someone by phone. You say you never talk for any lengthy time to seek counsel from a woman other than your wife. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Now, let me say again, I got a lot of women that are friends, but I have an inner council, if you like, of close, close friends that are all males except for one, and that's Charlotte. And the fact of the matter is I don't need to be bearing my soul to women. I just don't. And I don't need them bearing their soul to me. In fact, this again, I, I, I'm not a big counselor, even though I'm talking about marriage and family. I don't do a lot of counseling. I only meet with women twice. First time I tell them everything I know, because that's all it takes is one session for me to empty my brain. And then if they don't get it the first time, they can come back a second time. I'll tell them the same stuff again. And then if they need more help after that, I'm going to refer them. And guess what? I'm going to refer them to a woman. Why? Because women understand women. Men understand women. Men, you, you guys can't lie to me. You try, but I know how the ugly, sinful, hard-hearted male heart works. I know it. I've got one that, praise God, is under the reconstructing work of the Holy Spirit. But I know how men think. I don't know what, and women can play a man. They just can. But they won't play another woman. So I'm one of these guys that believes the best person to counsel women is women. And the best person to counsel men is men. But I'm not going to get in an intimate kind of way where I'm bearing my soul to another woman. I don't think it wise, and I'm not going to do it. Number seven, putting yourself in a situation where a friend or employee might become more. Number eight, having to touch, embrace, or glance at a person of the opposite sex. Now, I'm a huggy person. That's the way God wired me. But I know how to hug and how not to hug. I know where my hands belong and where they don't belong. Number nine, spending time alone with anyone of the opposite sex. And I think I've made my position on that quite clear. And then number 10, inordinate time on the Internet. Now, I don't have time to go into all this because I could spend an hour. But I'll give you the gist of it. Number one, all passwords to all computers should be common knowledge to all. So it's my password to my computer. No, it isn't. There's no you anymore. There's y'all and us. So don't talk to me like that because I'm not going to put up with it. Your computer is not your computer. Your smartphone is not your smartphone. It's y'all's. You say your wife has uh, all your passwords? Sure does. So do both of my secretaries and my IT guy too because I forget my passwords. And then I can't get into my stupid uh, technological devices and I have to call them to help me get back in. So that's one reason I do it. But the other reason is I like the accountability. I like the accountability. So, yes, my wife can go at any time into my phone. If she said, can I have your phone? Sure. I don't even ask for what she wants it for. I just, sure. It's your phone, too. Do whatever you want to. Call somebody if you like. Check everything out that's in there. Can I see your iPad? Sure. 
There's nothing I'm hiding from you. Why would you do that? The two would become what? One. That's what the Bible teaches. If you don't believe that, I don't know why the heck you got married. Not thinking right. Thinking like the world. Stop it. That's the Bob Newhart counsel. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. All right? Change your behavior. All right? But let me also say this, and this is for free, and you may get mad at me. I don't really care. Some parents, I don't want to say this. I'm going to be blunt. Some parents are really stupid when it comes to their teenagers. You're just stupid. You give your son, I, I won't pick on the girls, I know because I don't know girls, I know boys. You give your son a device that takes three clicks to get to pornography. And then you really get dumb and you make this statement that should never come out of the mouth of any parent. Well, my child would what? Never. Do you realize how dumb that is? I mean, really? Let me ask you a question. I'll, I'll make my point. Be honest. Be honest. How many of you, when you were a teenager, your parents knew everything you were doing? Would you raise your hand so I can see you? Your parents knew everything you were doing as a teenager. No, nope, mine didn't either. And guess what? I've got 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds now. And a couple of years ago, they told me some things they did as a teenager. And I'm like, my God, are you? Because I thought I had them, you know, under lock and key. Now, you don't have, you may think you do, but you don't. So what is your job as a parent? can't micromanage your life, but you can put in protective parameters that can assist them. By the way, if they want to see pornography, guys, they're still going to get to it. But dear God, why would you help them? Now, I'm all for kids having a phone because they need to be able to be called and they need to be able to call you. I'm all for that. But you need to be smart about how you allow your kids to have electronic devices. Again, I'm a seminary president. I'm training people that you send to me for ministry. We do surveys every year. Now, listen to this. This is to blow you away. We ask the question, how many of you, as you enter seminary or college, would say you have issues with pornography? 80% of the males. 80%. 70% now of the girls. And it used to not be that way. Pornography used to be predominantly a male-dominated industry, but we now live in a culture that is so sexually perverted. Even our young ladies are being seduced into it. And you and I need to be very, very, very wise Never allow your kids to be in their bedroom with you not having access to it. And if they say, it's my room, you take a sledgehammer and you tear the door down and you remind them, no, it is not your room. The fact of the matter is, you're lucky I don't charge you rent. This is my room. You drink my water. You breathe my air. You eat my food. You wear my clothes. And by the way, if they fit when you leave, I'll probably keep them and you'll go out of here butt naked. <laughs> and I did tell my boys that. Now, that I was being playful, but I was also making the point that this is not a democracy. Your home is not a democracy. Hopefully it is a benevolent 
dictatorship. And you're the dictator, and you tell them, what I say is what goes. And when you're the daddy, you get to make the rules. But in God's providence, and take it up with God, when you get to heaven, if you make it, why did he give you me as your daddy? Well, he chose to do it, and he'll give your kids you as a daddy, and you'll make the same kind of calls. But in this house, I am the law. And if they don't like it, have enough guts to say, well, there's the door. And guess what? Some of you have kids that are stiff-decked enough. They'll take the door, but the odds are they'll probably come running back. They actually got a pretty good deal. Free room and board, mom washing the clothes and everything else, drying the clothes, folding the clothes. Great day. Only an idiot would leave a job in a situation like that. But there are some foolish kids in the world, aren't they? Let's move on, and we'll bring this to a close. Number six, the fox of fatigue. A marriage will get in trouble if the wedding vows are considered conditional. Marriage no longer a sacred covenant before God, and divorce begins to be considered as a possible solution of an unhappy situation. Let me be a prophet and a pastor. Prophet, God hasn't changed his mind. God is not a fan of divorce. God hates divorce, Malachi 2. But folks, we live in a broken world, so these divorces are going to happen, all right? That does not mean that we don't keep the standard high and we don't try to provide a better role model and better instruction and teaching for our children that they might avoid some of the pain and sorrow and hurt that many of us have gone through, all right? But on the same token, we live in a broken world. And if you're here this morning and you've gone through a pain of a divorce, I'm not throwing a rock at you. We all have things in our past which we could change and there's things that have happened that we can't undo but because you're here today I suspect that you do care about your marriage and every one of us can say going out of this marriage seminar today God by your help we're going to make it to the end and we're going to be faithful to our marriage vows and we're not going to allow the D word to even be considered and even when things get tough look every marriage has its bumps Every marriage has its difficulties. The issue is what do you do when they happen? And too many people bail when if they just stayed with it and worked through it, they would have found the joy and the blessing and the grace of God that is on the other side. Then number seven, we'll end on a fun note. The fox of misunderstanding, a marriage will get in trouble if the man and the woman fail to understand and appreciate And enjoy just how really different they are from one another. I was thinking about this a number of years ago. And again, just kind of came to my mind. And I thought, you know, I think that's right. And then I've seen a number of guys over the last 20 years or so that said, use the same analogy. But I never saw it. It just popped into my mind one day. But here's the bottom line on this difference thing. Men are dogs. And women are cats. And that's the whole thing. And if you'll just get that down, you got the difference thing figured out. You say, what do you mean by that? Oh, it's self-evident. A dog. What does it take to have a happy dog? Three things and only three things. Number one, you feed that dog. Number two, you play with that dog. And number three, you praise that dog and you have a happy dog. That's all you got to do. My wife and I, for years, she's in dog heaven now. And I do believe animals go to heaven. That's a whole other conversation for another day. But I believe all of God's good creation will be represented in the new creation. Now, will Samantha, my great Dane, be there? I can't be certain of that, but I hope so. But anyway, we had a great Dane, 150 pounds, this big. 
biggest baby you've ever met in your life, and she was a happy dog. Why? Because, number one, we fed her a lot. Number two, we played with her. And number three, we praised her. I'd say, Samantha, my baby girl, you come here, and that dog would get on the couch, lay back from, like, over here to over here. I'd start rubbing her chest and her stomach and that tail like a giant windshield wiper, back and forth, back and forth. And she wasn't going to move. She was there till the day she died if I would kept rubbing her stomach because she's a dog. Well, men are like dogs. What do you do? Have a happy, happy husband, ladies. Three things. Feed him, play with him, praise him. He'll roll over and let you rub his tummy too. So anyway, that's all you got to do. But ladies are not like dogs. No, your wife's a cat. Cats are different. You're standing in the room one day, mind your own business, not bothering anybody. Suddenly you look over there and there's a cat. That cat's eyeballing you, and you don't know what to do. You just kind of stand there, and here it comes. And this time, can you believe it? It starts rubbing up against your leg and purring, and you even bend over and pick it up and hold it, and it keeps purring, and then you put it down, and it runs out of the room, and you think, man, that was a nice cat. That was a sweet cat. But 30 seconds later, the same cat appears in the doorway. You look at it, it eyeballs you again, but this time, it jumps for your face. It tries to claw your eyeballs out. Same cat. But something happened in the other room, and now its disposition has been radically, radically altered. Now you say, Brother Danny, that's true. I know it's true. Well, what do you do? You pray. You pray a lot. But then you remind yourself, the Bible says it's not good that a man is alone. I'll make him a helper who will perfectly compliment him. And I know this much. I do know this much. Charlotte and I were better parents together than we would have ever been by ourselves. We were better parents because the two of us were doing it together. She saw things I didn't see. I saw things she didn't see. And together, I think God allowed us to be much better moms and dads. Fact of the matter is, I have no doubt I'm better as a minister because of her and God knew what he was doing even though we're very different when he put us together and so rather than allowing the difference thing to be a point of frustration and and disappointment no 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 see it as a, a delightful journey that God intends for you to be on till the day that you enter into his presence because you will be better together than you would ever be by yourself that I absolutely believe. So, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. There is so much wisdom there, Lord. I don't think we could ever exhaust it. But, Lord, I pray this morning for my own self, beginning with me. Uh, because even though I talk about this a lot, I know I have work still to do. Help us, Lord, to strive to be godly, godly men and women, godly husbands and fathers, godly wives and mothers, that, Lord, we can show this cynical, skeptical, critical world that the Lord Jesus Christ really does make a difference, not only in our lives individually, but he makes a difference in our marriages and in our families, and he can do the same thing for them if they will just invite him in. May you do this then for our good, but for your glory, and we ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. amen.